listening to NL News Day. Thanks for tuning in here on this Monday, April the 5th. Now, because it is a Monday, as always, I am pleased to welcome to the program Acumen Law's Kyla Lee. Kyla, how are you here do, here on this Easter Monday? I'm great, thank you. How are you? I'm doing well. Unfortunately, we're stuck working today, but uh, hey, that's all right. It gives us a chance to have a nice chat here. So um, I, I just wanted to get things started with uh, your experience related to getting a, a vaccine. You got in and uh, were able to go and get a shot this past week. So I, I guess I just wanted to get a little bit more information on how things went, how you're feeling and, and what the process was like. So uh, the first question I had to you, you was just how happy are you to have gotten your inoculation here? So happy. I'm glad I've got it. I'm glad it's done with. I'm glad I don't have to think about it for four months till I get dose two. And I'm glad that, you know, in a week and a bit, I'll have immunity. So what was the process like? I mean, did you get a letter in the mail and being notified it was your time? Or are you just, you know, paying really diligent attention to what the rollout schedule is looking like? How did you kind of get in line, I guess, first and foremost? Well, I got it because I'm Indigenous, mm -hmm. and they opened it up to all Indigenous people over the age of 18. Um, so somebody notified me on Twitter. I had been paying close attention, but I thought, oh, it's not going to be for a little while um, that they get to be 18-plus Indigenous mm -hmm. people. Um, and then I just checked my Twitter one night, and somebody had said, it starts tomorrow. So <laughs> the very next morning, I phoned in. Um, I made the appointment. It was like 13 minutes from start to finish on the phone to get the appointment set up. So it was very fast. There was no lengthy hold time. I had no problems with the call. Um, and the entire process was efficient. I got an appointment the next morning. And uh, within 24 hours of making the call, I had a needle in my arm. Wow. So that went a lot smoother than I would have guessed. Not saying I would have expected to be overly bumpy, but that still went uh, quite quite quick. So um, how are you feeling? I mean, you, I think you got your vaccine on Tuesday. You can correct my date if I'm wrong on that. But just, you know, how are you feeling since then? So it was Thursday last week. Thursday. And I felt... Yeah, I felt fine. Um, the, the 15 minutes after the vaccine, they make you sit in a room where they're monitoring you to make sure there's no signs of anaphylaxis. And I've never been so cognizant of the size of my tongue in my life. <laughs> um, but that was just anxiety. Um, beyond that, I had a slight metallic taste in my mouth, a little bit of a headache and some slight nausea the next day. But by now, I'm, I'm totally fine. So how long, just like a kind of a 24-hour little groggy period, if you will, but other than that, no, no ill effects? Yeah, it felt like maybe I hadn't slept enough for the next 24 hours. Okay. Um, so what do you know what kind of vaccine you actually received? Did they tell you that uh, before you go in? Do they tell you that when you're already in the chair? How does that work? <laughs> they tell you after it's in you. Oh. <laughs> um, I got the Pfizer. They give you a form. Um, every health authority has a different sort of look of the form. The one I got um, looked kind of like a boarding pass. It was printed out by somebody from WestJet. Um, and they just check a box for which vaccine you're administered and, and all the details with the lot number and uh, of the uh, dose in case there's any problems and they need to contact you. It's all recorded on there. And, you know, it's been about a year or probably a little bit less than since, uh, you know, you actually had COVID-19. Does that change anything in terms of how you go about going through this process? Do you have to let them know, hey, I did have the virus at some point and and does that impact uh you know whether you get a second dose or anything like that it had no impact on it I, I told my health history to the nurse who administered the vaccine and she didn't uh, feel that it made any difference what i'm seeing other countries are doing is they're sort of giving people who've had the virus six months 
where they believe that you maintain an immunity. And then after that, they think that the immunity is basically gone. So okay. I'll need both doses. Okay. Well, we'll, uh, we'll talk more about that process when that comes. But sounds like it went pretty well for you and pretty straightforward. So that's good to hear. And I hope the vast majority of people in this province who are getting vaccinated are, are having a similar experience as well. Um, I, I got to... Since we're on the topic of COVID-19, I guess maybe I'll go right into this issue around around restaurants and what we've seen over the course of this past weekend. Um, a number of, of videos have come out from restaurants who have, you know, maybe refused to close or aren't quite following COVID-19 protocols. But I think the one that's catching most uh, people's attention is uh, Corduroy Restaurant. Uh, patrons in that packed restaurant, I believe it was on Friday when the video was taken, chanting to health inspectors that came in, uh, basically saying, get out, chanting, get Get out. Um, the restaurant eventually slapped with a closure notice, and apparently online the restaurant owners had posted they were closed because they ran out of food, although I don't really believe that to be the case. But uh, what other consequences could potentially be on the way here? I imagine a fine would be coming uh, for, for not following uh, public health orders, but I did see a statement from Solicitor General Mike Farnworth on the weekend saying harassment of enforcement officials will not be tolerated and closure orders by Vancouver Coastal Health or any other health authority must be respected. There most certainly will be consequences for those openly ignoring and defying orders that are intended to keep British Columbians safe. Uh, so what kinds of potential follow-up consequences could be coming here? Because, you know, the harassment of health officials is not a COVID thing. That's um, probably something that would be frowned upon at any time, uh, pandemic or not. It would be, and there are specific offenses in the Public Health Act as well as in the city bylaws um, that relate to preventing health officials from doing what they need to do, either enforcing orders um, under a public health emergency or public health orders or enforcing provisions of the Public Health Act just related to their ability to investigate restaurants um, for just general health concerns. I mean, if you obstruct a health official from coming in and checking for a pest outbreak in your restaurant, you can be charged with an offense under the Public Health Act. So, you know, there is a, a possibility that these people who were obstructing uh, the health officials and the restaurant owner um, who participated in it and allowed it to happen could face further charges with, with significant consequences beyond just the, you know, $230 fines that we've been seeing. So would that strictly fall on the restaurant owners themselves or could patrons who were, you know, basically you could see their faces in, in these videos. I mean, would they potentially be uh, contacted here as well or any ideas how that potentially would work? Patrons can be charged, I and mean, they would likely be charged under the same provisions that allow people who are participating in unlawful gatherings to receive a, a ticket if they don't disperse when they're told to do so by, by officials. I think that that charge could apply to those individuals, but the patrons certainly could be subject to the same charges. It's the, the offense is obstructing the health official in doing their works, uh, not being the restaurant owner um, who's allowing the obstruction to take place. Now, do these just result in more fines or could there be more like closure notices involved? Could a restaurant be completely shut down for not of, uh, following health rules? How does how does that, um, you know, how does enforcement, I guess, work? Is it strictly just a, a financial thing or is there more to it? There's more to it. Um, in some circumstances, they could attract jail time. It's unlikely that we would see that in the circumstance of this case, but the, certainly the health authority can order that the restaurant be closed permanently. Uh, they can take steps to restrict access to the restaurant, including locking the door, chaining the doors, changing the locks on the door. Um, there's also ways to involve the landlord. If the restaurant owner doesn't own the premises, then the landlord can be compelled to assist in preventing the restaurant owner from accessing the property. 
Um, okay. I think that's about all I had on that, but it'll be um, kind of a lesson, I guess, to be learned from, from other restaurants who maybe see something like this. And I imagine we'll hear more about this tomorrow once sort of government is, is not on holidays anymore, and we'll see what consequences might be, be stemming from this uh, in addition to the fines. But uh, that's some interesting information. I, I did want to touch on Claire's Law here with you as well, just uh, to completely switch gears here. Um, Alberta, as of last week, became the second province to bring in a law that it says could help people at risk of domestic violence learn about their intimate partner's past. Uh, the legislation, which, as I mentioned, informally known as Claire's Law, came into effect this past Thursday in Alberta. The law originated in the U.K. Uh, about a woman who was murdered in 2009 by a partner she did not know had a violent criminal history. Um, a similar law came into force in June in Saskatchewan last year, and I believe you and I actually probably talked about this when that change was made in Saskatchewan. Um, I can't remember for sure, but it feels familiar to me. So I just wanted to start with why. I, I know you don't believe this is a good thing to be put in place. So I just wanted to start by getting your thoughts on, on why it's not really a, a great move here. Well, uh, it's in part because of the sort of wide range of people who have a right to seek out information about another individual's, you know, supposedly violent past and the, the lack of checks and balances on who can access that information and then what they can do with the information once they get it. It essentially amounts to an avenue to get public disclosure about a criminal record um, for something that may have happened a long time ago, may have uh, been resolved and, and may not be any indication of who a person is at the point in time that the disclosure is being made. Um, and I guess you have to apply from what I understand, right? The, the person who wants to learn more about their partner's past has to like actually apply into the database to see if they can find out more information. So I guess there is some sort of protections in place. You can't just go out on a whim and say, hey, I think my partner might have a violent past, but you actually have to, you know, go about going through the system. But what are, I guess are the potential dangers that people who maybe don't have a violent past could be worried about? I mean, this is, it, it feels like the government's getting involved in relationships, and I don't know if that's a spot for, for legal action necessarily when there's so many unknowns when you're talking about hopefully a new relationship in this type of a situation. Well, and, uh, you know, a lot of people who have had previous convictions for domestic violence, violence incidents, you know, the conviction doesn't tell the full story. Um, there's often something that leads up to uh, to the incident. Of course, there are people out there who are inherently abusive, but in a lot of situations where uh, a conviction for domestic violence is entered, it can be, a, you know, a, a relationship that was toxic, that, that turned violent, um, that doesn't indicate anything about how somebody's going to behave in a relationship in the future. The person may have been abusing drugs or alcohol or dealing with mental health issues or financial struggles at the time that have since resolved. And it's essentially saying that a person can be consistently defined by their past. Even if they're put on a period of probation, they follow all of their probation conditions, they get the counseling and the help that they need, and they turn their life around and they no longer pose a risk to anybody of repeating that behavior. They're now treated as though they forever pose this risk simply by virtue of one incident that may have happened a long, long time ago and, and that may no longer be indicative of, of any actual risk to the public. It would be nice to see this law crafted in a way where disclosure could only be made in circumstances where the person presents an active risk to somebody that's in a relationship to them. 
So you think that there, you know, maybe the intention behind Claire's Law is, is good, but it might not be the best way to be going about this kind of uh, collecting this information or delivering this information to someone who might potentially be at risk. There, there's potentially another way, I guess, from, from what I hear you saying, that we could have similar programs in place. There, there probably is another way. I mean, right now in, in Canada, our federal privacy laws prohibit the RCMP from disclosing information about a person's criminal record without actually having consent from the individual. Um, so it's only police, local police forces that would be entitled uh, to disclose this information if the province passed legislation to allow it. Um, so there would have to be a way for the federal government to create essentially a, a mechanism to do this. I think it is a good idea in some respects to create uh, information that's available to people about individuals that pose an active risk, but how to do that without violating privacy rights is incredibly complicated, and I don't have the answer to that question. Fair enough. Um, Do you see BC paying attention potentially to what's going on in Alberta and and looking at something similar here, or or do you have any idea if that's on the radar uh, of, uh, of BC legal officials at this point? I don't foresee this being something that we would have in BC. There has been no uh, indication from the government that they're entertaining something like this. Um, we have other mechanisms in British Columbia to deal with uh, with domestic violence. We have domestic uh, um, violence courts um, in our major courthouses. We have different programming um, through alternative measures to deal with these situations. And I, I think I like to think that the approach that we take in BC is designed to balance those privacy interests as well as the protection of the public. Well, I think that uh, pretty much wraps up the questions I have here on Claire's Law and and what we might see uh, from Alberta potentially leaking over to British Columbia. Doesn't sound like that will be the case, at least not anytime soon. Thanks, as always, for the time, Kyla. Always appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks for being available on Easter Monday, and uh, we'll do it again next week. Thank you for having me. Awesome stuff. Acumen Laws, Kyla Lee. And just doubling back there again to the restaurants in Vancouver, the city of Vancouver says it now has suspended the licenses of two restaurants for defying the COVID-19 restrictions that were announced last week when it comes to indoor dining. Uh, Vancouver Coastal Health issued closure orders for Gusto and Corduroy Lounge for failing to comply with public health orders. That will remain in place until at least the 20th of this month, and then we'll see what happens thereafter.